Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open those Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be beginning in verse 22 of John 6, and uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. If you're visiting Christ Church, welcome. Uh, We're glad you worship Jesus, and we're very encouraged by you worshiping him with us. And uh, we are going to continue in John 6. This is one of my favorite, uh, because it's messed with me very much, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Uh, you know, it, I make fun of preachers like me who stand up and say, this is a really good passage, like there are bad passages of Bible. So, but this is one that has messed with me, and it's become memorable. If you look at John 6, there's a lot that is built into it that John is doing here as he begins to turn our attention from Jesus' ministry to the world toward his ministry toward Jerusalem and the crucifixion. John spends so much of his time in the last week and the last days of Jesus that he's, he's focusing our attention on this. Where we've been in John 6 to date is that Jesus fed, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a little a boy sack lunch. Matt Gilchrist taught us that text a few weeks back. And then we looked two weeks ago at the text where Jesus uh, goes up to the mountain to pray after the feeding of the 5,000. He puts the disciples in a boat and he tells them to go to a certain city and he'll meet them there. And they're, they're going across the corner of the lake and they meet a big storm. And Jesus comes walking out to exactly where they were in the midst of the storm. And Peter asks if he can walk on water and Jesus lets him. But what I want you to take from the walking on the water is when they saw Jesus, they were frightened and he said, take courage, it is I. He was hearkening to that I am statement that God would make throughout the Old Testament whenever they would say, by whose authority do we do this? By whose authority do we speak? Why do we go this direction? And God would say, tell them I am sent you. And when Jesus walked out on the water, he said, take courage because I am. And the the storm instantly calmed and instantly they ended up in the location that he sent them to. Then our text takes off today by simply opening with three words. We'll look at it in just a moment, but it says the next day. What's significant about that is I want you to keep the time frame in line here. This is all taken period in about 24 to 30 hours. And so it's immediate in their minds, although we've stretched it out over a month. And Jesus is about to enter into the other side of that little trip he took, he's about to enter into a crowd. And in that crowd are three distinct groups. And I want you to see if you can remember something for three weeks. When we look at the remainder, beginning in verse 22 to the end, verse 71 of John chapter 6, Jesus is dealing with three crowds. The first crowd is the largest crowd, and that's a group of people who don't know who he is. Then there's a smaller crowd in the large crowd, and that's a group of people who should know who he is. And then there's a crowd a smaller crowd of about 12 who do know who he is. So keep that in mind as you process John 6 and you'll see something significant. There are people that surround Jesus who don't know who he is and he reveals himself distinctly to them. Then there's a group of people who should know who he is and he corrects their false vision of him. And then there's a group who do know who he is and he asks very much of them. So no matter where you are in the crowd today, he's got a word for you. Whether you don't know, should know, or do know, Jesus has a word. 
And I'm going to give you the word now and talk about it for three weeks. Does that excite you? No? Okay. So here, I'm going to do it anyway. The word is belief. It's what we do with belief that allows us to know who he is at the deepest of, of means. So I want to walk you through the text here. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk the text. It's the best way to look at the Bible. Exegete the passage. And if we exegete the passage properly, it will exegete us. Let's begin. Jesus came to bring us something satisfying. For those who didn't know who he was, and that's who we focus on today, for those who didn't know who Jesus was, he promises satisfaction if they'll take the time. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone, on away, gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Pause there. John doesn't mention how many are fed. Do you notice what he just mentions? Jesus gave thanks and performed a miracle. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When the crowd found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Now remember, whenever Jesus starts anything with I tell you the truth, someone's getting corrected. It's like my father never used my name unless I was about to get it. Now he'll say different, but he's wrong. He would say, Mark, and I knew that that was I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The crowd followed Jesus, interestingly enough, because they expected something from him. Now Jake, who, who was just up here leading us into the Lord's Supper, I don't know that he saw my notes, but he just preached my sermon. And I'm afraid he did it better than I'm gonna. Because what he said is, the crowd had gathered to get Jesus to do what they wanted him to do instead of receiving what he came to do. And that's what people who don't know who Jesus is do. They expect Jesus to work for them. They expect Jesus to see their dreams and fulfill their dreams. They expect Jesus to come and give them what they want. And I want to tell you, this is, this is my thought for the morning. We want Jesus to give us what we want, and he wants us to want something different. Do you see that there? Here's the good news of Jesus. He doesn't condemn you for wanting you what you, for, for you, I'll start over. He doesn't condemn you for wanting what you want. He does desire to change what you want. You see, he challenges our current appetite so that he can change our appetites. He, he wants to give us something better than what we've been feeding ourselves forever. Yet we decide we like what we eat. We like what we like. We like our routines, don't we? One of the biggest deterrents, if not the biggest deterrent to following Jesus is Jesus is inconvenient. And we have built our entire lives on convenience, especially Americans. We want it done for us, not by us. We want a God who comes in and does what we need done without asking anything of us. And that's not Jesus. If you want Jesus to give you what you want, you truly don't know him. Because Jesus doesn't want to give you what you want. Jesus wants to give you what's satisfying. Let's look at the second point. The kingdom of God is the satisfaction. 
And for Jesus to give us what we truly need, it's probably not what we're asking him to give us. In response to their suggestions that they were working hard, it's kind of interesting, he says, do not work for food that spoils. He's identifying that they're working to be satisfied, but he says, but work for the satisfaction that lasts, not the temporary satisfaction. So in in response to his suggestion that they were working hard, this is what they said in verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? If we're wasting our time, what are we supposed to do? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The kingdom is being revealed through Jesus, and we must work to comprehend it. And there has been this age-old theological debate, and people buy into it, and it is a lie of Satan, and so easy to believe in. Did you hear what I just said? It's incorrect, but it makes us feel good. And this is the lie, that all you have to do is agree with Jesus, and you're saved. Uh Uh-oh. Are you uncomfortable? Because the moment I tell you there's something we should be working on, instantly we start tapping the brakes. Wait a second. There's nothing I can do that merits salvation. You're correct. There's nothing I can do that pays God back. You're correct. But there is something you're supposed to do, and it takes work. It takes effort. It takes diligence. It takes intentionality. You have to believe And believing is a verb, not a noun. It's not a past fact. I can tell you on September 29th, 1974, because of my baptismal certificate, I know the date. In South Bend, Indiana, at the Northway Church of Christ, I was baptized for the remission of my sins and the gift of eternal life. If that's all I got going for me, I misunderstood what it means to believe. I can tell you a historic date and time at which I made a public profession before my friends, family, and God himself that I would be a follower of Jesus because I believed he was Jesus, the son of the living God. If that's all I got, I've not demonstrated belief at any level. I've just said, okay, I agree. Jesus said the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. How do you demonstrate that? I want you to look at Psalm 145, verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. Faithful to all of his promises. Maybe that's what belief's about. Maybe it's believing that what God said matters, matters. And what God said he would do, he will do. And what he's asked us to become, we should work to become. With his grace and with his Holy Spirit, we can enter into a belief that's active, not a belief that's historic, not a belief that's a moment in time, but a belief that transcends every moment in time. For instance, the promise that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Do you believe that, church? Oh, I keep forgetting. I'm at Christ Church. I have to warn you. I'm going to ask a question. Feel free to play along. Let's try this again. In church, this ought to get a little bit of noise. Do we believe the promise that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head? Do we believe the promise made to Noah that God's ability to deliver us from his wrath? Do we believe the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that a nation based on faith would fulfill the promise for all mankind? 
Do we believe the promise made to David that his heir would rule the great throne? And do we believe the promise? One more. I know you're exhausted. One more. Do we believe the promise that came through Isaiah and Jeremiah that God would hold us responsible for our actions, but he would also meet that and mercifully redeem us if we return to him and repent? If we believe those promises, how can we sit and say, I made a choice in 1974, and that's all I got? We can't. There's no way you can believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and do nothing with that for the rest of your days except attend church. What can we do to please God? Jesus said, believe in the one whom he sent, Jesus. Now, does belief mean that he came? Yeah. Does belief mean that he died on the cross? Yeah. Does belief mean that we believe in the resurrection and the power of it? Absolutely. But belief also means we obey his commands. So if you have bought into the Western culture lie that believing is simply saying once and that's enough, then you have not obeyed the commands to go into all the world and preach and teach and serve and love and forgive and honor and bless. That's why I believe is a verb, not a noun. John 6, verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous signs will then you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Time out. He just fed them yesterday. He just took a sack lunch and fed 5,000 men and their families, and their question to him is, well, prove yourself. Now you understand why toward the end of his ministry, Jesus stopped doing miracles. Because miracles don't feed you forever, they feed you for a moment. That was the problem with the crowds that didn't know him and thought they knew him. They kept wanting him to prove himself over and over. He already has. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, I want you to, before I make fun of them, I want to point out that they do something we all do here. They use Bible against Jesus. Did you catch that? Jesus said, the only thing you want is a free lunch. And they said, yeah, but God gave us a free lunch in the desert. And Jesus is like, (sighs) okay, let me explain. Verse 32. I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. He said, really? You'll only believe in God if he gives you bread every day? Instead of believing in the God who supplied your needs every day in all the other ways too. Don't limit what you believe God to be simply on what you expect him to do. Church, you with me? Don't base your belief on all God is based on what you expect him to do. Jesus was saying to them, no, God took you into the wilderness. He led you in the wilderness. He provided you safety from the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Do you remember that moment? He fed you every morning. And when you were worried that he wouldn't feed you enough and you collected too much, you woke up the next day, what happened to that extra manna? It was spoiled rotten. Because God was not trying to say, I give bread. What God was trying to say is, I give you everything you need to be satisfied every day. That's who I am. And Jesus said, that's why you don't know who I am because you think I'm here to give you a free lunch when I want to give you something that will end your hunger. Sir, they said, verse 34, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
John will give us seven I am statements of Jesus. This is number one. If you've been tracking through this series for the last nine years or however long it's been we've been doing this, if you've been tracking in this series, you might want to make notes in your notes that this is the first of the seven I am statements, and we will do our best to point all of them out as we process John. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It's quite interesting here, and it brings me to my third point. Jesus is the only provision for deliverance into God's kingdom. Jesus is the only provision for deliverance into God's kingdom. Taking the Lord's Supper every week isn't a provision to get into God's kingdom. It's a demonstration that you believe in the value of the kingdom. Baptism is not the provision to get you into the kingdom. It's a response to the one who gets you into the kingdom. It's an obedient response to surrender your life to Jesus. Your profession of faith doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. Your profession of faith only acknowledges what the Holy Spirit has convicted you of, that Jesus is the only provision to get you into heaven. Church, I can do this all day. I can deconstruct everything we religious people have made more important than Jesus and show you that it can't be more important than Jesus. He's the only important thing. And the crowd said, feed us and prove yourself. And he said, I have, and you've missed it. When we miss Jesus... Religion becomes our attempt to twist God's arm hard enough for him to forgive us. When we get Jesus right, then anything that we do in any religious activity is a testimony to how he is greater than me. You see, do you remember that woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And she said, then give me a drink and I'll never come to this well one more time. You see, they were hungry again. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 proved who Jesus was, but they missed it because they thought Jesus was here to make them happy instead of fulfill them. He was seen as a means to an end. He calls them to himself where they will have what they need. He said, if you come to me, he who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. There is an action there. There is a coming to Jesus. There is a believing in him. There's a choosing him. There's an intentionality. Remember, we want Jesus to give us what we want, and he wants us to want something different. What does he want us to want? Him. Church. We have it right if we, if we remember it. Life is about Jesus or it's not life. There is no life without him or it's temporary at best. It's like eating a sack lunch on a beach and being grateful you got a meal. But when you wake up the next day and you're still hungry, what do you do? So here's two easy questions. What do you do when you're hungry? I heard it. You eat, praise the Lord. Isn't that a good thing? You eat. And if you keep eating, you won't be hungry. I know this is simple. Some of you are like, it's a trick. No, trust me. What do you do when you're hungry? You eat. And if you keep eating, you won't be hungry. And what do you do when you're thirsty? You drink. And if you keep drinking, you won't be what? Did you hear what Jesus just told us? If you want to be satisfied, don't make it about temporary satisfaction. Make it about eternal satisfaction. If you keep coming to Jesus when you're hungry, you will not be hungry. And if you keep coming to Jesus when you thirst for deeper things, you will no longer be hungry thirsty. You see, believing in Jesus means we keep coming to Jesus. Instead of sitting 
in our homes asking him to come to us. Instead of running our lives our own way and when tragedy hits saying, God, would you enter into my story? Jesus said, keep coming to me, keep believing in me and I will end the hunger that hurts your soul and the thirst that parches everything about you. Keep on coming. Keep on believing. If you don't know who Jesus is, don't stand in a distance. Get close. Approach him. All of our provisions are found in him. Unless we don't come to him and fill our appetites with him, we will fill it with what? Convenience. And everything else that's temporary. We'll be so focused on making sure that we're never hungry again that we'll stop going to the only one who can make sure we're never hungry again. Verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. This is not an angry Jesus. When he says, you missed me, he's not saying, you're so dumb. No, he says, no, you're so distracted. You're so worried about making sure that you're covering your hunger and making sure that you're covering your thirst, that you're going to wake up every day hungry and thirsty, no matter how hard you try. But if you come to me, I'll fix you forever. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. I'd like to conclude this morning by walking you quickly through the good news of what belief will and will not do. First of all, without belief, you will miss out. Without an active, pursuant belief, you will miss out. Without an intentionality to allow Jesus to fill you before you let anything else fill you, before you try to expect your wife to make you satisfied, or your husband to make you satisfied, or your job, or your kids, or your education, or your fame, or your accomplishments, again, I can go all day. If you're trying to replace the only thing that will satisfy you in this lifetime, Jesus himself, with something else, you will awaken every day hungry and thirsty. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He said, you've missed it. He's a significant figure, an important figure, yes. He's a historic figure, yes, he actually existed. He actually walked this earth. He actually had to eat meals every day also. But he's more than that. He's not telling us to have an intellectual agreement. He's telling us to commit ourselves to him first. You might have remembered what he said on the mountainside that one day, seek ye first my kingdom and all these things will be what? So let's talk about what belief brings us. With belief, you will find acceptance. Does that matter to us today? What causes people to take their lives? What causes people to commit crimes? What causes people to do so many things? Loneliness, they don't feel loved, they don't feel respected, so they strike out to feed their own hunger, to solve their own thirst, to find out it doesn't. Verse 37, he who comes to me, I will never cast out. What does the word never mean? Thank you. Never means never when Jesus says it. No matter what your record is, no matter what you've done, no matter 
what you've been, how proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient you've been, no matter how you spent your entire life feeding yourself and finding out that every day you wake up more hungry than you were the day before, and every day you, go, you try to solve your thirst with money or possessions or sex or whatever, you realize you wake up the next day and you're parched and you're hurting and you're shamed. Jesus said, no matter how much you've tried to feed your own hunger and thirst, you come to me, I will never throw you out. I will never cast you aside. Just keep believing, and if you keep believing, you'll keep coming. With belief, you will understand God's purpose. Let me show you four things this morning that are God's purpose. First, we receive the work he does. Now, this, for those of you that got a little bit nervous when I started about using the word working, like we achieve, accomplish, or earn something, don't panic. We receive the work he does. If I handed you a present and asked you to unwrap the present, did you really work for it or did you just receive it? So when we believe intentionally, we're not actually earning it, we're receiving it and using it and opening ourselves to it. I have come down from heaven to do this very thing. Isn't that good news? Jesus said, no, no, I'm not angry at you. I'm trying to awaken you. We receive the work he does. We receive entrance back into the Father's will. Verse 39, this is the will of my Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. Jesus said, I got this. And I've been using that expression a lot this spring, and it just it hit me one Sunday. Aren't we grateful? We've got a God who's got this. Jesus said, no, no, I don't need you to save the world. I need you to trust the one God sent to save the world. And I need you to join me in the work of saving others because you can't save yourself. We receive the resurrection of our soul. Verse 39, I will raise him up on the last day. I don't know when the last day is, and that bothers me. Does it bother you? I mean, all joking aside, I'd like to know when my wife says we're going out to dinner, I have a bunch of questions. Where? Who's paying? Can I have all I want? Just simple questions of selfishness. When Jesus said, on the last day, I'll raise you up, I focus on the last day, and I miss the best part of that sentence. He said, I will raise you up. I want you to ponder this with me now. When he says, I will raise you up, does it mean I will raise myself up because I've done enough? Does it mean I've earned it because I turned my life around and I'm a better version of myself than I've ever been before? When he says, I will raise you up, it means if I'm raised up on the last day, it will be because of him. And that is what I need to remember. There's nothing I bring him but filthy rags. But somehow in God's pleasure, he enjoys that I'm trying to love him with everything I am. And lastly, we receive the gift of eternal life beginning now. Verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes on him has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Church, look at verse 40. Anyone who believes on him has eternal life. Not one day has eternal life, but you have it now. Wouldn't it be God's pleasure if you and I lived like Jesus was telling us the truth? Like we actually believed his words are true. That we actually believe that he can heal anybody. That he can save anybody. And Jake read my notes. Are you praying at 9.38 in the morning and the evening? Or have you given it up like, ah, it was good, but I, I'm over it. No, don't 
be over it. Because when Jesus said, pray that God sends workers into the field, he's not asking us to pray that others go. He's asking us to pray that we go. Have you ventured into a conversation, a hard conversation with someone who needs to know they're loved by Jesus but has written him off? They're trying to fill their hunger their own way. They're trying to end their thirst their own way. And we know it doesn't work. Shouldn't we offer them a well that never runs dry and food that satisfies for eternity? The call of the text this morning is clear and simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? Because if you do, you will come to him before you go to anything else. You'll receive him before you accept any, anything that's so false and fake. Believing is coming and believing. It's working to bring him pleasure by believing in him and we believe in him when we do what he asks. We have a good king, don't we? Oh, I got a good response that time. We have a good king who loves us, who will not cast us out, who will raise us up on that last day because as believers in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Let's praise his name together and stand. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.